Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, Boston. Hello, America. Chuck Morse here at Chuck Morse Speaks. This is your host, Chuck Morse, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Blog Talk Radio and Cyberstation USA Radio Networks and on our affiliated radio stations, WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida, KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon, and, of course, go to our Cyberstation affiliate to Get your Stitchers app, which is a free app that will allow you to listen to this program anywhere in the world, and you can listen to it on your cell phone or wherever. We're also on TuneIn and iTunes. Uh, the number, if you'd like to reach us, of course, to get on the air is 347-327-9849. That number, again, is 347-327-9849. It is a pleasure to welcome James I. Niehaus to the program today. He is the author of Old Earth, Why Not, from the organization Genesis Veracity. James, how are you? Doing great, sir. Genesis Veracity Foundation is the latest endeavor. added a foundation on the Genesis Veracity. Great to be on with you, Chuck. How are you today? I'm well, thanks. I'd like to just catch up a little bit to give our listeners a little background here. Sure. I had you on my show probably, must have been at least, half, at least five, six years ago. Yeah, seven or eight, and, I think. Probably, yep. And we talked about Old Earth, Why Not? It was around that time that I was becoming aware of the fact that the theory of evolution is just that, a theory or a hypothesis, not fact. And uh, I think, yep. Yeah, let me just say, just just to jump right in right away, um, myself as a young Earth creationist and, and my brethren, uh, it, we we fall into the trap that we that we've allowed Darwinists to say, well, creationists don't even believe in evolution. <laughs> no, we believe in evolution per se, within the biblical kinds or the modern biological term for the biblical kinds is syngamions of animals, like the dog syngamion. You know, mm-hmm. all the quote breeds of dogs, you know, coyotes, wolves, they're all interfertile, proving they came from a common ancestor. So we believe in natural selection within these biblical kinds, but so we believe in evolution per se. So when confronting Darwinists, make be clear of the term. They believe in Darwinian evolution, and we right. believe in evolution per se. I'm sorry to interrupt and take not not at all. And I wanted to, I wanted to develop that concept and really stretch out and do that because it's a very important distinction. Um, I became aware of the issue mainly because, like most of us. I was conditioned from very early age to believe that uh, the theory of evolution is science, and that Darwinian the question, evolution. That's right. The, uh, the the conventional theory of Darwinism. Do that. Thank theory you. of Darwinism. Da- how about Darwinism? Darwinism is science, and that's a question that was anti-science, and that somehow was the um, the purview of people who were really backward, and it was um, it was there was a great deal of stigma attached to that. When I became aware of the fact that this is just a theory, and I published an article about it that appeared on several conservative websites, the response was extremely hostile from both liberals and conservatives, I point out, uh, just nasty personal attacks 
that I would dare question Darwinism. And, and I think that when I look at that response, it's understandable because when we're talking about evolution, we're talking about the origins of man. These are things that all of us ponder over. Right. That's right. right. Every individual ponders <laughs> Sorry, over. Chuck. That's okay. That's okay, James. Let me just develop my my, my Let go me ahead, set the ahead. table here. We 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 all ponder where you know the old saying the old expression that was uttered by Admiral James, Admiral James Stockwell in the famous debate when he was Ross Perot's running mate. Who am I and where did I come from? Class. And and as a result, people are very emotional about that. And they're also very angry because there's, a, there's kind of an unspoken message that if you question the received wisdom, Darwinism, then you are uh, somehow a bad person. Now, the article came out. I interviewed you. You then made a very generous contribution to my campaign when I ran for Congress. I should say that in 2004. Thank you very much. And that, of course, was registered in the um, Federal Elections Commission page on on congressional contributions. Uh, I was running at the time against sitting Congressman Barney Frank of Massachusetts. And uh, Barney Frank and I had a real campaign. We debated each other half a dozen times uh, on television and in person. I raised a half a million dollars, and there was a lot of media associated with it. And toward the end of the campaign, we were on, and it was a bruising campaign, but toward the end of it, we were on a pretty big television show here in Boston, that being Jim Browdy's show. And Barney turned to me and he said, you don't believe in the theory of evolution. And he listed out a couple of other things. But in the entire campaign, I never saw him more angry that I would dare question the theory of evolution, that I would dare question Darwinism. And, um, I, you know, it, it was like he was looking at the camera and saying, don't vote for Chuck Morse because he's not fit to hold office. He's crazy. And, you know, it was really the kind of thing that obviously had nothing to do with the campaign, but it, it goes to show uh, societal attitudes toward, toward this sort of indoctrination. That, of course, led me to write a book, which is now available as a PDF on my show website, that being Chuck Morse Speaks. The book is called The Monkey Trial. Evolutionary Politics in the Post-Traditional Age. Now, on that note, let me get into the issues at hand, James. And James, of course, is the author of Old Earth, Why Not? And that is that, uh, from what I can tell, what we have are two competing creationist stories, ultimately. Now, you were talking about the difference between the Darwin's theory of evolution and what you would contend is a more biblical view of evolution. Uh, let me just ask you about that, because I think that what you're talking about there, James, is, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's adaptation more than it is evolution. In other words, that various species of dog or cat or, you know, other species. Take humans. Take humans. Yeah, that's you know, right. Dark There's adaptation. Humans, dark-skinned humans have greater survivability near the equator. So they live longer, and that gene is, uh, you know, manifested in the population, and and the flip side with lighter-skinned people uh, at the more extreme latitudes. Exactly, and that's the point that that if you live in the if you live, if you're a Laplander or you're Norwegian and you live up near the North Pole, you know the days are you'll shorter. You'll live longer, and you'll have more kids, so that gene will perpetrate. 
Exactly, and and the fact is that the days are shorter. There's less sunlight exposure, so over over generations and thousands of generations, the skin gets lighter. Not thousands. So that, we're merely 150 or so from Adam and Eve. But go ahead. Well, we'll get into that in a minute. But but the point is that that the uh, the survivors are those who can absorb more sun rays to get more of the vitamins that are required to live, and so as a result. There, the people's skin is lighter, whereas if you live near the equator where there's high, longer days and more direct sunlight, you develop melanin in the skin so that you can protect yourself from the sun well, rays. It's not so, so much doctors. you develop it. You don't develop it. The gene for that manifests in those populations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the trait does not evolve, quote-unquote. It's there. It's there within the gene right. pool of the human syngamion. And it selects in those environments, particular, particular traits select for particular environments. Well, now, James, here we're getting at something that I think should be named explicitly, which is the racist nature of the Darwinian theory. Because if you accept the Darwinian theory, which, number one, would hold that we're all at different levels of evolution, therefore we're all not born equal, which is a biblical concept, and that some people have darker skin, lighter skin, Therefore, you'd have to assume, scientifically speaking, that groups of people are more evolved than others, and some are less evolved than others. And, uh, and of course, that's exactly what Darwin believed. I mean, he believed that uh, black people were less evolved than white people. And and wasn't that so, in one of his titles, the elongated title and the, the competition of the races? Of the races. And then the second book, Descent of Man, which I also read, is more explicit in that he says, for example, that the aboriginal people of Australia are closer to the baboon than they are to the human. Who in were slaughtered as trophies in the late 1800 by the British uh, adventurers. Yeah. That's right, and exactly. And he referred. This is a classic elitist English attitude toward race. And he was, in a sense, the father of scientific racism. He believed that there were that different groups of people had had higher levels of evolution. He believed the English were more evolved than the Irish. Absolutely. And in so, Plato's or uh, Darwin's notion, actually derived from Plato's chain of being wherein uh, all non-Europeans were uh, a step up from animals, but just below Europeans. Well, yeah, I mean, but but Darwin added a scientific veneer to it when he... Uh, a morphic uh, veneer, a magical veneer, that they magically somehow yeah. into new types of creatures, scientifically impossible. You know, the only evolution, quote-unquote, we see is simple Mendelian, you know, genetics, your little bean sprout experiments, you know, in elementary school. Right. That's the extent of evolution, i.e. natural selection within the syngamions of animals. That's right. And also we should point out that Gregor Mendel was the father of modern genetics. He was a Catholic priest. And um, Darwin's theories, on the other hand, derived from the what we might euphemistically call the European Enlightenment, and that was the different levels of evolution. Now, I want to get to the fundamentals of that, again, and compare that to the biblical conception. The biblical conception in the book of Genesis, and it's a very important philosophical idea as well as religious, is that um, we were created in the image, both man and woman created in the image of God. It says that right at the beginning of the book of Genesis. And the founding fathers of this republic, Thomas Jefferson mentioned it specifically in the Declaration of Independence, 
brought that into our way of understanding our government and, and life by saying that all men are created equal. That is the idea, that we are all in possession of a divine spark, if you will. We're all created in the image of the creator, and therefore we are all equal in the sense that biologically speaking, spiritually speaking, we are all a brotherhood of man. Now, if you accept the Darwinian idea, scientifically, you have to admit that you believe that all men are not created equal, that we're all at different levels of the evolutionary Not created chain. at all, for that matter. Well, Go that's ahead. right. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, the, the whole idea, that their, their idea of creation is you had... Um, we'll have to rewrite the Declaration of Independence, maybe, if the Darwinists would have their way. Yeah, no, I mean, they believe that inanimate, unliving matter was crashed together, and out of that somehow... We should work on life. that. Let's do the Darwinist version of the preamble to the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> you know something? That's, that's, uh, you, you've just given me an idea for another article, and boy, am I going to get in trouble for that one. Anyway, my guest is James Nienhaus. The book is Old Earth, Why Not? Genesis Veracity Foundation. Uh, James, you've got a bunch of other books over there, too, because you've been doing a lot of research on this since we've last talked. What else well, do you have going on? Well, the latest, if they would just go, the blog is uh, linked at the, the Genesis Veracity Foundation. The blog is called dancingfromgenesis.com, and there, there's various categories. The, the mystery of Atlantis is solved, for instance, within the biblical purview. The Ice Age, incidentally, actually ended at the time of the Exodus. But on and on, uh, dancingfromgenesis.com, great blog site. James, I want to talk a little bit about the old Earth, young Earth uh, theories. And this is another one of these things that the secular people get very emotionally angry about when they insist that the Earth is millions and millions of years old. Uh, and they scoff with scorn at the idea that the Earth can be measured back to the Hebrew calendar, which has us at about uh, slightly under 8,000 years old. Uh, under, slightly under, so they have us at 5776. Oh, but that's right? off by about 200 years because of the Olam Seder Rabbah, written around 300 A.D., but that's for another show maybe. Sure. So, uh, But you make the case, and you do it with, with good scientific evidence, that the Earth is not millions of years old. Um, let's just talk a little bit about that, James. I'd like you to just flesh that out a bit. Sure. Uh, well, to begin, you know, with a young earth creationist notion, you must, you know, you go with Noah's flood. We believe Noah's flood ha actually happened, and that's reflected in the geology. Now, the big stumbling block for the uniformitarians who believe that, you know, all systems are basically functioning as they always have, no catastro no catastrophes in the geologic record, uh, they will they will say, well, Noah's flood had to have covered the Himalaya mountains. That's ridiculous. Well, that would be ridiculous, but in fact, the Himalaya Mountains rose at the close of the flood. The mountain ranges and continents uplifted at the close of the flood, while the mountain, while the ocean basins deepened to receive the flood water, which slid off, leaving behind on the continents vast sedimentary layers with billions of creatures entombed therein, 95% of which are marine creatures. So that whole, the geology screams mm. catastrophism, 
and that only 4,400 years ago, uh, borne out by many indicators such as that carbon-14 is found in oil and diamonds in measurable amounts, proving that they are only in the thousands of years of age, among many now, other indicators. So what you're saying then is really quite astonishing. First of all, the carbon-14 data dating only well, can go back. Well, I was speaking of a radioisotope for hard rock. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, we, on carbon. There's car. I'm sorry. Finish your thought. Carbon-14 well, well, in my, oil my and understanding, gas. Right, finish your thought. And my understanding on carbon dating, and I got this from my daughter's high school science book, is that it can only go back no later than, at best, 10,000 years. Well, that's about uh, 25,000. The half-life is 5,000 years. The half-life of carbon-14 is 5,000 years. So, you know, half of that, 5,000 years, and half of that, 5,000 years farther back. It gets to uh, insignificant amounts at about twenty five to 30,000 years. They're, they trust it, quote-unquote, back to twenty to 30,000 years. But there's right. measurable amounts in that range in, carbon, in uh, coal and diamonds, uh, which are ostensibly hundreds of millions of years old. That what what is hundreds of millions of years old? I'm sorry. The coal and diamonds are supposedly right, hundreds right. of millions of years old. Yeah. So within them is car radioactive carbon fourteen, which should have de all decayed within forty thousand years. That's right. But uh, in fact, the carbon fourteen can only be dated back no no longer than as you say twenty thousand. Right. So so what we have then is when people talk about the old earth that's theory that's not fact it's it's scientific speculation because the only thing that can be really proven by methods that are presently use we presently use is no later than 10,000 years or 20,000 as you say with the carbon dating the other thing that's astonishing is the marine fossils millions and billions of marine fossils at the tops of mountains, at the tops sure. of the Himalayans, at the tops of the Rockies. How did they get there? Which jibes with the fact that the mountains rose at the close of the flood. And is there biblical talk on that at all? Well, I think uh, Psalm 104, verse 5, as I recall, speaks of the mountains going up by the, uh, the highlands and down by the basins and the waters settled to where they would never be breached again. Yeah, you know, i.e., the, the close right. of the flood. It's rather allegorical sounding. You can't directly pin it, but Psalm sure. 104, verse 5, I think, is an allusion to it. Right, and also I think that we should just briefly comment on Jesus how the Bible. spoke of a literal Noah's flood. So, so for a Christian, that should mean a lot. But anyway, go ahead. And also, <laughs> with regard to biblical analysis, I think that it's safe to say, and I come at this from a Jewish perspective, I happen to be Jewish, is that. Um, you cannot absolutely know everything that is said in the Bible because there is things there are things there that have been left unsaid. There are mysteries there, and that's because God did not want us to know every little thing with regard to how creation occurred and how early man developed. There are mysteries. Yeah, we saw, had know so much about the post-flood world. You know, from the, the the devastation of the flood and the genetic bottleneck of the eight humans on the ark, from that point on, we have extensive corroboration, even in mythologies. Uh, for instance, Atlas, who found it, helped found uh, uh, Atlantis, was a son of Sidon, who was a son of Canaan, who was a son of Ham. Sidon is Poseidon. Poseidon, mm -hmm. his son was Atlas. 
they founded the the uh, the Empire of Atlantis, which Plato said extended inside the Pillars of Hercules, which is Gibraltar, to Italy and to Libya, and outside as well. It was a shoreline kingdom which was submerged when the Ice Age ended. The city of Atlantis, the, the circular canal city, was called the city of Poseidon. It was the, the capital city of that coastline empire. And the Ice Age ended when the oceans had cooled to about today's temperatures because you can only have an Ice Age if the ocean is warmer to have caused all that evaporation for all that dense cloud cover. And that warmer ocean was caused by Noah's flood, the fountains of the deep. It all fits together perfectly. So then, in other words, the Atlantis was before Noah's flood, and there was ten generations. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. no, the Ice Age followed Noah's flood, as I just said. Oh, okay. All right. The Ice Age right. followed Noah's flood, when the uh, and the Ice Age was caused by the warmer ocean to have okay. created the dense cloud cover. Then around 1500 B.C., at the time of the Exodus, the ocean had cooled to about today's temperature, such that the uh, skies cleared and the Ice Age ended, and the sea level rose, and then Atlantis submerged, lots of submerged sites all throughout the eastern Atlantic and uh, Mediterranean Yeah, that's sea, what I was going to ask you about which that. Which the experts do not want to talk about because of the timeline implications. Well, let me ask you about that because you have, geographically speaking, you have Atlantis as a seacoast city on the western part of the Mediterranean and on the no, Atlantic. No, 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 no. West of Gibraltar, the city, the, 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 the empire of Atlantis was a coastline empire, as Plato said, which extended all the way to the Tyrian Sea, Tyrrhenian Sea, which is Italy, and to Libya, and outside the Straits of Gibraltar as well. So it was obviously a coastline. Uh, okay. Empire. It was not some island out in the middle of the Atlantic. By okay, Plato's so own words, I proved that at that blog site, dancingfromgenesis.com. Right. Okay. I'll have to look at that. So what you had then was a raising of the oceans and the burial of this empire. It was submerged underwater. You about say two hundred, about two to three hundred feet, the sea level rose. Right. Go ahead. Okay. So you say there's archaeological evidence of it. Oh, there's submerged cities all throughout the Mediterranean Atlantic, which, as I said, the experts will not touch because they of the timeline implication. It proves that the when the Ice Age ended is when the Bronze Age ended. Those are Bronze Age cities submerged in the Mediterranean Sea. For instance, uh, Yarmouta off of, and Sidon off of Lebanon, sure. and uh, Atlit Yam off of uh, Israel. And uh, off of Abdera and Plata Gialis and uh, Satura off of Greece and off Cadiz off Spain and off Morocco off Lixis. You know, hundreds of submerged stone Bronze Age ruins of cities that the Darwinists refuse to entertain because they say the Ice Age ended at 10,000 B.C. Amazing. So we have real archaeological evidence of this. This, of course, oh, a whole ocean flood. full of submerged ruins, which they don't want to touch. Right, and that's all in the Mediterranean Sea. In now, the Eastern um, Atlantic, as well as other parts of the world. I deduced right. how they measured and mapped the Earth by the Earth's wobble rate at Genesis Veracity Foundation. The Earth wobbles 72 years per degree, base mm -hmm. 6 number, with simple hexagon geometry, they were able to measure and map the Earth, evidenced in the dimensions of the Great Pyramid of Giza. 
I have deduced all that, and that is at that website, GenesisVeracityFoundation.com, all dovetailing perfectly with a literal Genesis account. Does the Atlantis appear as a uh, place in the Bible at all, other than in the psalm you mentioned? No, in the psalm, that's speaking of Noah's flood, as I said. Noah's flood, okay. The, uh, uh, regarding the Atlantis, yes, uh, uh, in the sense that the ships of Tarshish are mentioned as sure. being trading partners with King Hiram at the time of uh, King uh, Sol- uh, Solomon. Solomon. Yep. Uh, so uh, the ships of Tarshish, that is ancient Tartessus of Spain on the Guadalquivir River, which was anciently known as the Eber River. Now, who was Eber? You know, that was the father of Peleg, you know, in the line of Shem. Yeah. That's right. So here we have, uh, yes, Tarshish was another name for the Atlantean Empire. The name Tarshish probably was in vogue when the Ice Age had ended. Atlantis at the coast was submerged, yet there was Tartessos in that rich mining district up the Guadalquivir River. It was not submerged when the Ice Age ended, so that region became known as Tartessos. Right, and obviously Ships this, of Tarshish. Right. this whole development didn't occur overnight. I mean, it took many centuries. of. It of, took about uh, a century for the sea level to rise. And when right. the sea level rose, when the Ice Age ended around 1500 B.C., Climate change, you know, the dense cloud cover of the Ice Age worldwide was no more. So the Sahara became the Sahara at that point. You know, Egypt was not the desert that it is today when those pyramids were built, where now maybe five inches of rain falls per year. Perhaps 20 to 30 inches of rain fell in Egypt. The, The Nile lapped at the paws of the Sphinx during Old Kingdom Egypt when the Nile was four times as wide and, you know, 50 feet deeper. How did that happen, James? I mean, so then there was... It was during the Ice change. Age, global, global cloud cover during the Ice Age. So right. there was much more rainfall, you know, at the equator, Africa. The deserts sure. were green. The Middle East, where Abraham roamed, was green. It was more like Kansas or Texas than the, mm-hmm. the seas of sand we see today. Wadis, Wadi, W-A-D-I, means stream. Yeah. That means stream. Wadis were streams at the time of Abraham. Okay, so then I mean that makes sense scientifically that there would be a, that, that with the recession of all of that uh, water, there would be a, a drying of the atmosphere and a warming. Well, the cloud of the cover dissipated. That's right. With dense global cloud cover because of the warmer ocean after Noah's flood, you had snow in the extreme latitudes and the high elevations, and r- lots more rain in the middle latitudes and lower elevations. And that all ended at 1500 B.C. when the ocean temperature uh, dropped to about today's level and the uh, global cloud cover dissipated. Right, and that was also, again, this was ancient times. This was, as you say, the 1500 B.C. was actually before King David and Solomon. I mean, this is years uh, earlier, yeah. Right, this is maybe the time so of by, the... Yeah, uh, great point. So by David's time... The highlands of Israel was prime real estate. They still had artesian springs. And where the Canaanites had lived, down in the valleys and near the coast, that was all rubbish. That was dried up desert, worthless land. So God's providence is evident. You know, he put them in the highlands where all the artesian streams were when the Ice Ages ended. That's right, and there's a lot of references in the book of Judges and Kings about the highlands and the high, the tops of the mountains. That obviously was the choice land. Now, as far as the Noah's Flood goes, there are 
legends in amongst uh, indigenous people all over the world that correspond to Noah's flood, including right. the the Hopi Indians, uh, including uh, Chinese populations well into the interior of China. In fact, there's a city in in the interior of China where they found on the uh, in the wall of an ancient building a complete depiction of Noah's Ark. That's right, um, the Fu He, right? The fresco of Fu He, there, the, the yeah. Chinese Noah. So, so in, in other words, we have the testimony of people in the in the oral traditions. Six hundred six hundred tribal traditions. You're right. You read. You've referred to several of them. There are hundreds of them. Go ahead. That's right. I mean, in Indonesia, there are people. These are all. They all collaborate that this event happened, this great flood, and that a couple of people survived, and that the floodwaters came up and covered the earth and then there was a recession of the flood, and and they all make reference to uh, this this man uh, who was Noah, who then sent his offspring out to populate the world. Right, um, and often often a question of unrighteousness before the flood, the wrath of God or the gods, often involved, always involved, actually. Um, Adam and Eve, there is more and more genetic evidence and consensus among responsible geneticists that all of man is descended from one mother whom is called the mitochondrial Eve. And more recently, the speculation is also one father who is called the Y-chromosome Adam. Uh, this seems to correspond to the book of Genesis, does it not? Absolutely. And, you know, those uh, tracers back to the original, uh, at least the original woman, our the rate, the distance back in time is predicated on that the rate of mutation of the, of involved genes has always been the same rate. When but um, there's plenty, you know, there's plenty of reasons. I'm not a, a, a biologist, but there's plenty of reasons to think the mutation that those mutation rates could have been greater in the past. So you can greatly reduce that. What 500,000 years they say for the original Eve. I mean, you can you know decrease that by you know several powers. Uh, I forgot, I can't cite the reading which I've done on that, but yes, traceable back to to one you know female. That's right. And if you would expect the gradual morphing of monkeys into humans, you know you'd expect a whole pot. You couldn't trace it back to one because there'd be a whole population that was supposedly you know, evolving, morphing from monkeys into humans. So there'd be gradations of that. You could not exactly. pinpoint where, who, you know, why there is that one female original, quote, human, end quote. James, I want to take a brief break. My guest is James Neenhouse, the director of Genesis Veracity Foundation, the author of Old Earth, Why Not? You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. You're welcome to join the program, 347 327 9849. We'll be right back. Three two seven nine eight four nine is the number if you'd like to join us. 
347-327-9849. I should just mention a little breaking news here because I cover the Rasmussen poll every day, and obviously we have an election coming up. The poll was just published. Rasmussen was knocked out of commission for a day or two, mainly because he happens to be in New Jersey, which is experiencing floods today. Um, and he has uh, today's uh, presidential tracking poll has Obama at 48, Romney at 48. So you have a dead heat in the Rasmussen poll. Uh, and, of course, Rasmussen is, is considered one of the best pollsters with the, one of the most sterling records, namely because he polls only people who are likely voters. So it's an absolute dead heat. In Colorado, you have Romney at 50, Obama at 47, that being one of the uh, so-called battleground states. Iowa, Romney 49, Obama 48, looks like a dead heat with a slight edge for Romney. Wisconsin, Obama 49, Romney 49, dead heat in Wisconsin, which is definitely a battleground state. So that's just a little breaking news there. James Deanhouse is my guest. A Genesis Veracity Foundation. The book is Old Earth, Why Not, among other books. James, back to the topic of the veracity of the book of Genesis, and we're contrasting that with the theory of evolution as it was expostulated by Charles Darwin, which is, of course, the accepted version of creation. Uh, the theory of Darwin would have it that, as you said, man came out of the ape. In other words, you know, when I've interviewed scientists and um, and evolutionary uh, Darwinian apologists, they get very kind of squishy over this issue, which is that what evolution means is just that, to evolve, to get better. It's when somebody evolves, they they improve. That is the dictionary definition of evolution. That is how Darwin meant it to, to be. That is what the theory stands as today. And uh, therefore, you would have to say that Man improved due to mating between apes and eventually emerged as a superior species. And, uh, by the way, the word species is Latin for race. Uh, the, uh, the whole idea, the action of evolution, if you will, Darwinian evolution, is mating. It's breeding. It's a theory of breeding. The idea that a superior member of a species mates with and breeds with another superior member and thus gives off superior offspring who then find other superior members. In the meantime, there are other members of a species who are devolving. That would only stand to reason based on their science, and therefore they would be becoming inferior. Those have to be either annihilated or they, have to, they die out naturally as the superior members continue to march forward into this biological superiority, and then after umpteen, who knows how many thousands, if not millions of years, out pops a new species. Now, this idea is bizarre. It's one that uh, is not uh, in any way supported by any shred of science, in spite of a century and a half of, of millions of hours and money and dollars spent researching it. And my book deals with the political implications of this theory. I tie the fact that Darwin, uh, that Karl Marx was an admirer of Darwin's, that they were contemporaries in London, and that Marx dedicated his book Capital to Darwin. Darwin refused the honor, sent him a letter saying, I, I can't accept this. That's something that you can find in Darwin's house library in London. 
and that Marx <clears throat> took the biological theories of Darwin and he transposed it onto his political theory, which was that the human society was evolving into superior societies by stages and that the ultimate stage was a society, a utopian society, that Marx called communism. Now, the, the, uh, the other branch, of course, the biological branch of uh, Darwin's theory, was promulgated by his cousin, that being Francis Galton, and also his close colleague, and he coined the term eugenics, which means in Greek, ancient Greek, good birth. And that would only stand to reason, because that's the theory. He felt that it was man's moral obligation to bring about superior specimens, to get good births, to get good breeding. And he convinced the British prime minister in the late 19th century to give financial rewards to couples if they married other couples that were seen as superior specimens. And for every child they had, they would have more money. Uh, the idea being that in order to evolve the human species, one would have to create superior breeding and superior specimens of the, of the, of the race. Uh, this, of course, was ultimately completely embraced by the Nazi movement, uh, who talked about the Ubermensch. And the Ubermensch is the evolved man. It's a superior species that would come out of the human species after breeding. Uh, the, uh, the conception of the Ubermensch was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Superman who would live to be 200 years old and who would have cosmic consciousness. Uh, this would only stand to reason based upon their theory based upon what they suggest, you would have to conclude that man has a moral obligation to biologically evolve his species so that we could have a superior existence and that we could get rid of those who the eugenics called useless eaters. That's what the practice of evolution has been. I document this in my book right from the days of Darwin up to modern times uh, and show the quotes in terms of how, you know, what, what people were talking about in the conventions and I would contend that it's still around. It's, it's part of the so-called population control movement today. And it's, it's not as explicit. Look because, how Africa is handled. Look at yep. the slaughters that happen in Africa. Nobody lifts a finger. That's right. Because, exactly, and this is part of the enlightened view. This has always been a progressive movement. Nazism was a progressive socialist movement. Uh, only after World War II and the Holocaust and the bad name that it got did uh, it get labeled as, uh, you know, regressive and right-wing, and also it was not as far left as Stalin. But uh, that's another subject. The point I'm making here is that evolution, the idea that uh, bi biologically evolving man is true, is an idea that has led to constant wars and bloodshed and slaughter and a complete div you know, divorcement, if you will, of human society from basic moral precepts, which, sure. of course, are existent in the Bible. Sure. I get tired of being called a Neanderthal for my beliefs, I must <laughs> confess. However, a Neanderthal was fully human, merely suffering from rickets and you know great something? You bring, you bring up something here, James, that's very interesting when you talk about Neanderthals because there's no such thing. The Neanderthals are not a lesser evolved man. I mean, this was... There were several hoaxes put out by scientists going all the way back to, um, you know, the very beginning, the Piltdown Man, the Neanderthal. These were presented as the so-called missing link. The, the, the Brassica Man, the whole bit. Right. Yeah. 
Australopithecus. man was a pig's tooth. How do you like that one? Well, there were certain Chinese <laughs> merchants who were very, very savvy when the National Geographic would show up, and they'd sell them some bones and get a ton of money and then go oh, laugh, sure. laughing up their sleeve. And the National Geographic, of course, which is very evolutionary-oriented. Darwinism-oriented. Darwinism, as is the Smithsonian Institute. They were more than happy to promulgate these myths, and many of them knew consciously that these were lies, but yet they were put into uh, textbooks. Like, for example, Ernst Haeckel, the German biologist. They called him uh, Darwin's uh, Rottweiler in Europe. Right. He, uh, he, he hired an artist to create these woodcut drawings and, and, and images of the evolving fetus. And right. uh, the early fetus having a fish tail, and then they showed how the fetus would evolve into a young man. And that that was in science books for over 100 years. I mean, that was even up until the 1950s. Absolutely. I remember it when I, I'm pretty old. I remember it, though. Yeah. I mean, and these images were used by Planned Parenthood to convince women that it was okay to have an abortion. I mean, this was something, and it was a complete hoax, obviously. It was totally false. But by the time... Kind of reminds you of the climate change hoax. Go ahead. Well, let's talk about that in a minute. But but this was promulgated by Hackel, who knew it was a hoax and who pulled this off, but who was a very respected scientist in his day, also a racist. Um, and, and it was done because by the time the hoax was uncovered, you already had a generation of people around the world who had been conditioned to view this as, as fact. And it's and, the only alternative to the Bible. Think about that. A uh, skeptic's delight. Go ahead. Well, and also the Neanderthal man was in the Chicago Museum of Natural History for 50 years, presented as a missing link. We now know, as you just said, that it was nothing more than a scruffy-looking man. It was not any different than, uh, you know, there was no, there was no evolutionary Rick, it, it difference. had a vitamin D deficiency, you know, <laughs> inland, a uh, little, little vitamin D from fish and sunlight, uh, plus great longevity, you know, the descending uh, longevity in the generations after Noah, after Noah's generation, you know, they lived That's two, right. three, four hundred years, some of them, so between those two factors, yeah, there's your Neanderthal, man. That's they right, play, and they also... They play musical instruments, you know, they did everything, you know, practiced uh, surgery, Played musical instruments, you know, and they say they're a half monkey. Okay, go for it. Well, that's right, and and uh, I think that even Darwin had scientists around him, and particularly um, Wallace, who was a pretty responsible scientist and who was a believer in God, by the way, who questioned Darwin's theories and pointed out that the man could not be descended from the ape because the ape can't walk up straight and they cannot grab something in the same way. He pointed to several basic in. <coughs> You know, Plus, they're still around. Why didn't they die out? Well, that's right. Why exactly? Why weren't they? They seem to have stayed the same. Have we ever discovered a species in between the ape and and a lesser species? Of course. I mean, not. there's no. Even Darwin himself admitted that eventually there would have to be some kind of fossil evidence that right. uh, there was an evolving species, and there has never been a single fossil. There was not a shred of evidence to suggest that this has ever occurred. And why are there why are eighty percent of the creatures in the fossil record extant today, living today? Why are eighty percent of the animals in the fossil record alive today? That's right, and and that, that there's slight adaptations, but they're basically the same. 
That's right. And, uh, and, and what, what they do, because I've had scientists on this program, and I've asked them these questions, and I've read peer-reviewed articles in scientific journals that claim to prove evolution. But if you take a look Darwinism. at them, you, you, Go ahead. that's right. If you peel away the layers of the onion, you find that th- there's no such thing. I mean, what, what they do is they'll hold up a fruit fly, and they'll hold up another fruit fly next to it who has some different characteristics, and they'll say, look, this proves that, that this Darwin is involved. You know, just because they have different beak sizes means an eagle's going to morph from that. Are you kidding me? Well, that's it. I mean, there's no proof. It doesn't prove anything. All it proves is that you have two different, you know, we have two different Two different nose sizes. So if my nose is bigger than your nose, that makes us different species? What the heck is that? Exactly. I mean, they just hold them up together. They, it's like putting two people standing next to each other, one's taller than the other. It doesn't right. prove anything. It's just two different people. I mean, it's That's not. Right. All within the human syngamion, variation and natural selection according to environment within the human syngamion. Let me spell that. S-Y-N-G-A-M-E-O-N-S, syngamions. And what exactly does that mean? Uh, it means interfertile, quote, species, end quote. Uh, for instance, camels, llamas, and alpacas can all interbreed. They're all interfertile, proving they all came from a common ancestor, two on Noah's Ark. Uh, lions, right, tigers, and leopards can all interbreed, producing offspring, proving that those three, quote, species, end quote, actually came from a common pair on Noah's Ark, such that... Only about 20,000 syngamions of animals need have been on Noah's Ark. It, it does point to that, and I would also point out that those are not, they're not really definitely different species. They're more different. Well, species is a meaningless term. You have to just throw that out. Because that should, how is that diagnostic, you know, for classification purposes, when members of different species can interbreed to produce offspring? It's it's a nonsensical construct. And what did you say? That, and the name, the term, the meaning of species is race. Exactly. So they're trying to divide up biblical kinds or syngamions. They're effectively saying that a, a chihuahua and a poodle are of a different race, a different kind, and that's, that's not right. true. Just it's as different humans, genus. black and white, are not of different kinds. Exactly, and I think if you take a look at it genetically. Uh, strictly, like if you look at the DNA, if you look at it under a microscope, they're, they're not different. I mean, it's more of a different adaptation of the same eventual, you know, of the same. Well, yes, yeah, uh, latent genes become dominant when when, the, when that gene allows for greater survivability for the creature. That characteristic becomes dominant. It's within the gene pool. It didn't suddenly appear in the gene pool. It was always there, but it becomes dominant in a population where it's, where it's practical uh, for greater survivability, such as darker skin for people living near, near the equator. That's right, and, and the, the difference between the leopard and the uh, tiger, it, uh, it still doesn't prove that there was an evolution because one of them is not superior to the other. Well, I maintain in the case of tigers that the, the vertical pattern of the stripes uh, for bamboo grows for hiding. Think about that. That's right. 
the they population had much greater success hiding in bamboo groves with a vertical characteristic, and that trait became dominant. Exactly, because they're the ones that survived, and the other ones eventually were killed off, and uh, the, that particular genetic trait as you said, or was more survivable. But but that doesn't mean that the tiger, because we're talking about Darwinian evolution here, the tiger is not a more evolved species than is the leopard. No, it's just a subset of the big cat kind. It's a subset of the big cat kind. Exactly. And also there are a lot of species every even today that or or at least subsets that go extinct. That's just part of Well, all species are subsets of a biblical kind, put it that way. All species are subsets of the syngamions, which proves, you know, the, the species of a of one respective syngamion that can interbreed, you know, all that proves that they can interbreed. They're just subsets of the greater syngamion. So to even use the term species at all is ridiculous because you can take one species and mate it with another one and boom, what do you have, a third species all of a sudden? You know, right. the logic just is not there. Now, James, th- that this kind of begs the question, which is, why is it that the so-called enlightenment, the establishment, you know, the beautiful people, if you will, going back to the days of Darwin, why do they insist on this? Why have they latched onto it? I mean, Darwin's book, which was published in 1959, 1859, and which was basically a mock-up of his grandfather's uh, poem on evolution, that being Erasmus Darwin, it became an, a huge international bestseller immediately, one of the biggest of its, of its in history, going way back. It was promoted in Britain by this guy named Huxley, um, whose grandson, of course, was um, Aldous Huxley, Brave New World, and his other grandson was the founder of UNESCO. I get into that in my book. Didn't Darwin beg one of the Huxleys to provide uh, geological evidence that the Earth is that old? Didn't Darwin go to those guys? I need some geologists to say this is possible. Time. It was actually Lyell, who was considered the founder of modern geology, who um, was who did not endorse Darwin. Who, uh, you know, he uh, they were friendly, and Darwin borrowed from his geological works. He actually read them while he was on the Beagle. But, no, uh, I read, but I think one of the Huxleys, though, was begged by Darwin to come up with some geologists that can vouch for uh, an Earth being necessitated to be that old. And with right. their first deal was sedimentation rates. They did a sediment uh, an analysis of sedimentation rates and deduced supposedly how long it would take for a rock to form. And from that, you know, they went all the way back to billions of years. You know, of course, totally discounting catastrophism, which would cause it to accumulate quickly. Uh, but but anyway, yeah, it's it's just been it's it's a hatred of the Bible, Chuck. It, it's yep. it's the first it's the first quote scientific end quote alternative to the Bible, and you know if you can get the establishment to to love it, you know there, there's most of the world you know doesn't want the Bible to be true. Let's be honest, or you know half of the world right. anyway. So you know it's it's just a skeptic's dream come true. You know, those who want a reason to not believe the Bible, you know, the, here it is on a silver platter. And the and the Christians who allow Darwinism, the nose of Darwinism under the tent, you know, it's it's so ridiculous and so unnecessary because there's all these evidence for, that the Bible is as it says history was. But yet, you know, when you try and shoehorn Darwinism 
into the, the Genesis account, then it, then I would say, okay, well, at what point in Genesis then does real history begin to be recorded? Mm-hmm. Then watch the old earth creationists, watch their eyes glaze over, because they can't say, think about it. If Noah's flood's not true with the eight at that genetic bottleneck and the table of nations flowing therefrom, then where did real history begin? What are real names and places and dates, if not at Noah's flood and the, and the uh, seven with him? Well, I mean, that, that kind of begs the question. And I think that, um, as you say, there's a, there's a hatred for the Bible. It's an interesting question in terms of why that is. Um, well, it's spiritual. Actually, it's, you know, spirit, the yeah. unsaved hate it. The saved love it. It's, you know, Every generation <laughs> has kind of like a two-edged sword. But we have the science now to back it up. This is why it's such a great tool for uh, people that want to promote the Bible. You know, when you can show, when you can kick the Darwinists in the teeth and show them how and why exactly their analysis is wrong and ours is right, I mean, that's... That's their big weapon. Their big weapon is attacking Genesis. And when that's taken away from them, wow. That's right. I mean, that's, and they've, they've been trying to undermine the Bible every generation. You have people who are trying to undermine the Bible, including the generations in the Bible itself. I mean, we get, the Bible gets into the uh, idol worshippers and, and all of them. Um, Huxley was uh, Darwin's main promoter. He published a book review immediately in the London Times that that flashed around the world declaring this as the, the second coming. I mean, that this was the greatest answer to all the mysteries of the universe. And Darwin and Huxley spent the rest of his life, and he's also considered the father of what's called agnosticism. <clears throat> he, um, he spent the rest of his life debating ministers in, in London, I mean, Anglican ministers, and humiliating them. By, by saying, oh, you know, can you prove um, Adam and Eve? And it had all of the um, the scoffing and the sneering and the, the cackling that you, that's typical of the left today. Uh, I cover in my book the monkey, the famous monkey trial. That's the title of the book, actually, the Scopes trial of 1924, and William Jennings Bryan, who defended the state of Tennessee in that trial. And Brian, his uh, besides the fact that he was he was a religious man, his main objection, and you read this closing arguments, which I publish in full. It's an amazing document, one that should be read by every American. His main objection to Darwinism was not just religious, but it was the eugenic aspect. He was like, this denigrates and degrades man's role in in life. It, it takes man away from being. A, um, a being created in the image of God, and it turns him into an animal. It it takes away the purpose of life, which is to to try to live the good life, to try to do good on earth, to try to help society, and it turns it into a purpose of just biologically evolving. It it, it creates everything as being in the here and now, rather than looking to a future, or rather than looking to a spiritual realm. It's an yeah. You did point to a spiritual realm, Chuck. When the the an evolutionary uh, apex for man will be a spiritual enlightenment. Oh, who was that author you spoke of that, that posed that as the uh, ultimate end? As, um, as man evolved, they would they would become you know one with the gods effectively. Right. Well, no, I think that that's that's biblical. Well, and, no, you were just alluding to someone. Oh, William was, Jennings Bryan. No, no, about a half hour ago, who, who was uh, 
saying that well, man, man is evolving, a la Darwin, and we will evolve uh, you know, the superior race. Uh, is Nazism, I guess, reaching right, well, that, that a, a spiritual is, state of perfection, right? James, that author is yours truly. <laughs> I mean, that's 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 actually in my book. I mean, those, those are my conclusions, and I point out that uh, oh, the okay. uh, that Darwin's theory of evolution is the cornerstone of both the Nazi movement and the communist movement, right. which was to evolve man by on Earth, you know, by overthrowing God, and by creating an earthly utopia. In the case of the Nazis, it was a biological utopia, the Ubermensch, the Superman, you know, the blonde, blue-eyed superhuman being who would live to be hundreds of years old and who would have cosmic consciousness, and that right. would require a an annihilation of or a quarantining of of less evolved species, right. as 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 the Nazis saw it. And then the communist movement was, of course, collectivism. This idea that uh, man would evolve politically and socially by getting rid of all of these bourgeois prejudices that are false consciousness, as Marx called them. Things like belief in family, belief in God, loyalty, love, marriage, private trading, private ownership, and national sovereignties. Marx viewed all of these things as created by exploiters. He spoke of them as involving self-interest, which was a false idea, he claimed, and that to annihilate those things and remove them from human society, you would move man socially into this utopian society called communism, which is, of course, a one-world ant colony. Everybody would become equal, no property. Everybody, it, was, it would be, every human being would be lobotomized, and that the moral obligation of the uh, evolutionary Marxist was to uh, to lead man as a vanguard in that direction, and that's exactly what the communist movement has done. So, I mean, I get into these issues in detail in my book, The Monkey Trial, um, and, and it's it's it, if you, you look at the logic of Darwinism, this is what you would have to conclude that it was a moral objective and a, and a call to action for in so-called enlightened people to evolve man for our own good. And in the case of the Nazis, we know they did that with the concentration camps. And in the case of the communists, they did it with the, the murders of hundreds of millions of people in order to who were standing in the way of progress. Uh, so, you know, this is, you know, I, I think that we need to understand the ramifications, the, the political and social ramifications of Darwin's theory, and we need to look to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he said that an evil tree cannot bear good fruit, a good tree cannot bear evil fruit. Know them by their fruits. Anyway, James, so that's, that's a, a, a hypothesis there. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and, you know, thinking like a Darwinist servant, well, since there is no God, you know, we've got to do the best we can with what we have. You know, they've convinced themselves that there is no God. They act as if they could, they have proven that there is not a creator. How ridiculous is that? To insist that you have proven that there is no creator? Absurd. James, can you stick around for a little bit of the second hour? I just want to reintroduce the book because we're bringing in our affiliate stations. Um, sure. We're going, to take, we're going to take a brief break. You're listening to Chuck Morse Speaks. This is your host, Chuck Morse, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. 
We've got Cyber Station coming up, so please stay tuned. Uh, by the way, you're welcome to join us, 347-327-9849. Or you can email me, and I'll read your email on the air. That is Chuck Morse, M-O-R-S-E, number four, at gmail.com. Please stay tuned. Chuck Morse Speaks. This is your host, Chuck Morse. You're welcome to join the program, 347-327-9849, 347-327-9849. I'd like to welcome aboard Cyber Station USA Radio Network, our host station, also Blog Talk Radio, our online partners. And by the way, if you go to the Cyber Station USA Radio Network website, you can download Stitchers, which is an online app that will give you access to this program, to all of the other excellent programs on CyberStation um, that you can then have and listen to on your cell phone or wherever you want anywhere in the world. You're welcome to join the program. Again, 347-327-9849. James Niehaus has been nice enough to stay with me over into this hour. He is the director of Genesis Veracity Foundation. He is the author of Old Earth, Why Not?, we're talking about his book and and his website. We're also talking about my own book, which is The Monkey Trial, Evolutionary Politics in the Post-Traditional Age. James, let's, uh, let's recap a little bit here. Um, your book and your theories point to science and to scientific research that indicates that the Earth is approximately the same age as the Bible tells us it is. It shows that we have a one progenitor, a male and a female, that being called Adam and Eve. You get into uh, Noah's Flood. You talk about Atlantis, which is very interesting. And uh, and you point out, and I think quite accurately, and this is admitted by everyone, that as the time goes on now in our own times, every year there is more and more archaeological evidence to indicate that the Bible is true and is scientific. Oh, Absolutely. You know, that you know, the cradle of civilization there in the Middle East, you know, right where the Bible says it all began. You know, they 
trudged down out of the mountains of Ararat, went down the Tigris and Euphrates valleys, and settled there in that uh, in Mesopotamia between the two rivers, the land between the two rivers when it was not desert, because that was when the Ice Age was beginning, because the ocean was warmer after Noah's flood. And right. the mountains were not covered by Noah's flood. We discussed that in the previous hour because the mountains rose at the close of the flood. So after the flood, the ocean was warmer, much more evaporation. That was off the oceans for dense worldwide cloud cover. That was the Ice Age. And at that time when the people were coming out of the mountains of Ararat, they settled in Mesopotamia. It was green and lush. It was not the deserts that we see today. So take that Darwinian film off uh, the way we look at ancient history and think it through logically. You know, did they really settle in those stark deserts, those oceans of sand where we find uh, uh, ruins today, Bronze Age ruins today, such as the kingdom of Yam in the middle of uh, Libya, uh, which uh, Egypt, Old Kingdom of Egypt, traded with for ivory and timber in the middle of Libya, in the middle of the Sahara Desert at 2000 B.C. Now, how right. is this possible? It was because that was during the Ice Age, which followed Noah's Flood. So that's the template you look at ancient history with. And then you couple in the submerged ruins we now find worldwide, most of them in the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. That proves that the Ice Age ended much later than the Darwinists are telling us. The Darwinists are telling us the Ice Age ended around 10,000 B.C. But here we have these stone ruins that look like they're from a Hercules or a Cleopatra movie, the, the foundations of which we found on the, find on the shallow seafloor, proving that they actually were submerged around 1500 B.C. when the Ice Age actually ended at the time of the Exodus, when there was catastrophic climate change because the, the cloud cover, the dense cloud cover of the Ice Age had dissipated by 1500 B.C. Over a thousand years, the ocean had cooled sufficient down to the level that we see today, such that the Ice Age ended, and that's when the sea level rose, consuming 25 million square miles of coastal real estate within about a century. And from this flood, this limited flood, you know, we have our 600 global flood legends from around the world, but we also have legends of a limited flood rise. For instance, in the Vedas of ancient India, they speak of the ancient city of Kusustali, now in the Gulf of Kutch, that's the Gulf of Kush, Kusustali, the ocean port city of Kush, now submerged in the Gulf of Kutch. That's written of in the Vedas of ancient, ancient, ancient Hinduism. They speak right. of that in historical times, which in reality was at 1500 B.C. when that city went under, when the Indus Valley Civilization ended, where now is the great Indian desert in western India, are 800 ruins of ancient townships, you know, hamlets, villages, all across that great Indian desert from before 1500 B.C., because at 1500 B.C., that place began to turn to desert. So look at biblical history with these, with these, uh, this tent on, with this, through this template, and it makes total sense of the Bible. And you couple that with the fact that the only way you can explain an ice age is by a warmer ocean. When you think about it, to get all that evaporation to form all those dense clouds, Worldwide, you have to have a warmer ocean, and that right. having been heated from below. It wasn't global warming that heated the ocean, just like it wasn't global warming today that's causing hurricanes. 
Uh, let's, can we touch on that? Yeah, let's, warming, let's, the let's, of I, I was going to ask you, because since we're talking about climate change with the recession of the, uh, of the Ice Age and the uh, drying of the atmosphere, which resulted in things like the Sahara Desert, and um, what we have evidence in those uh, deserts that were, there were civilizations there, um, what, what's going on today? Why is, the, uh, is there global warming? And if so, what's causing it? Well, there's always been global warming periodically uh, when when there's a temporary increase of solar output, you know, solar flares, uh, sunspots. So there's temporary outbur- you know outbursts of greater solar activity. So obviously that creates global warming. But think sure. about this: when you get global warming, what does that do to the the uh, surface temperature of the ocean? It increases it, right? Sure. Warm atmosphere interfacing with the warm ocean increases the surface temperature. So when the surface temperature of the ocean is increased, what happens to evaporation rate? The evaporation rate increases off of the ocean, which right. in turn increases the cloud cover. And what does a cloudy day do to the atmosphere? It cools it off. Sure. So then, therefore, there would be global cooling if this was Well, a it's a negative feedback mechanism. When there is global warming because of temporary increases of solar output, you know, the the cloud cover increases because there's more evaporation off the oceans. But the basic theory as we see it today, the one put out by, like, the East Anglia Society in England and and NASA and, and, uh, you know, Al Gore. (laughs) You mean all those lying statistics they put out, among others, I guess? Well, well, my question, their their hypothesis is that – the Earth is warming because of fossil fuel emissions, because of carbon uh, being dumped into the atmosphere through pollution, whether it be the burning of coal and oil or whether it be uh, through combustible engine or, or whatnot. Is there, do you think that that's a true uh, – is that true? No, it's ridiculous. I mean, you, you know, if a couple of volcanoes go off, that's all the carbon – you know, that probably doubles – all the carbon dioxide we produce in a year, you know, are the human enterprises. It's totally ridiculous. I read that animal farts produce more carbon dioxide than all the man-made carbon dioxide. So the whole thing is just ridiculous. And even if that were the case, that such does cause an increase in the atmospheric uh, temperature, then once again, what does that do to the surface temperature of the ocean? It increases it, which in turn what does what to the evaporation rate off the ocean? It increases it, which does what to the density of the cloud cover? It increases it, which does sure. what to the temperature of the atmosphere? It cools it back down. And also I think it's, fa- it's safe to say that there's more vegetation in the on the surface of the earth today than there was probably two or 3,000 years ago. Uh, at least, you know, and I'm talking about more modern times. In, in sure. This country. Well, there's more forests in the lower 48 states today than there was in 1850. That's right, and there was and and there was more than when the uh, the, the pilgrims came to the New World, yeah. uh, when, when they found meadows because uh, the natives were using slash and burn uh, approaches. And remember the, the spotted owl that had to live in old trees. Right. How did the spotted owl determine what's an old tree and what's not? That's what I want to know. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> but and, and by the way, let me let me just say that I think that it's not a bad policy from a government policy to try to reduce air pollution. I've got no no problem with that. You know, oh I mean, I, my goodness, who only a fool wants clean water and I mean dirty water and dirty air. That's only right. A I mean, fool look at, wants I, that. I've had asthma. You know, I don't want to have. You know, it's obviously not healthy. But that doesn't therefore mean that we have to. 
completely curtail our development as a civilization, which is well, an just remember when when the atmosphere warms, more clouds are formed. That's all you have to remember. Shut them right up every time. Yep. No, that that that's a great uh, makes, analogy. Makes too much sense, doesn't it? Yeah, I guess so. Now, I want to get back, James, to, and by the way, my guest is James I. Neenhouse. The book is Old Earth, Why Not? Um, and by the way, let me welcome aboard our affiliate stations, WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida, KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon. Welcome aboard. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. Um, James, we're, we're talking about the, the so-called science of Darwinian evolution, versus creationism. In the first hour, we talked about the scorn that people are heaped upon if they question Darwinism. It's kind of received wisdom that you're told that you're anti-science. I got into some of my own history with that. I'm not going to develop that right now. But we're talking about the science of it, and I've interviewed people who are so tell them they're it. anti-science. You know, when you're yeah. equipped with information like you can be, they're anti-science, but go ahead. I agree, and and I find that once I question them, they will admit that evolution is not sustainable by any evidence or any fact. They'll 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 scream at me and you and mean Darwinian and evolution. Yeah, Darwinian, exactly. And they'll holler and scream, and sometimes they hang the phone. But when you get down to it, the theory of evolution, just to Darwin's theory, that is. Just to reiterate, it is a theory of breeding. There are two parts to it. The first part is that out of inanimate objects crashing together somehow springs forth life. That's a, that, that's the first piece. That's a big hurdle. Uh, Go ahead. Oh, exactly. And then the second piece <laughs> is that once this life has sprung it's alive. forth. alive. Exactly. <laughs> it's very Frankensteinian. Actually, now that you mention it, uh, Erasmus Darwin was a very um, – a good friend of um, in his and who grew up practically in his home of of uh, Mary Shelley, who's the author of Frankenstein. That's and, fascinating. Yes, I get into that in my book and the the connection there. We'll get into that in a minute. Wow. But um, the and he was really the progenitor of this whole idea. The second piece is breeding. That once these things become alive from non-life somehow, without explaining how that happens. They then mate with superior members of their respective species, in which case they have superior offspring who then mate with other superior members, and then after umpteen million years, out pops a new species. Now, the the theory is fantastic. I mean, it's, it's utterly uh, preposterous, in my opinion, and it runs completely contrary to the biblical notion which is that man and women, and the Bible says man and women, it doesn't just say man, were created in the image of God. And from that idea, which makes eminent sense, came the uh, founding of the American Republic. Jefferson mentions it in the Declaration of Independence when he says that all men were created equal. In other words, that we do have equality in the real sense in that we are biologically and spiritually equal. We're not equal in terms of how we live our life by any means or, or what we're – in fact, th- th- there's no equality there. But ultimately, we're equal. We're born equal. We die equal. Our souls are equal. This is a – you know, it is a brotherhood of man in that sense. But if you follow the evolutionary idea, you have to conclude scientifically based on their science, that being the Darwinian evolutionary idea – that you'd have to conclude that we're all born unequal, that we're not equal because 
we're all at various stages of evolving or devolving, as it were. And there's really no way around that. I mean, you have to, you know, that's one of the things that I confront the, evolu- the, the Darwinians with, and, and they can't wiggle out of that. I mean, if they believe that we're evolving and that we're through, through what, what Darwin called natural selection, then you have to conclude that different people are more evolved than others, and different races, therefore, are more evolved than others. And, and that's just what it is. I mean, that's when you get down to it, what this theory is. It's a theory of breeding. Okay. All men are hopefully evolved equally. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, the, the theory removes the, the basic, and this is, again, what, uh, what William Jennings Bryan objected to in his closing statement in the Scopes trial. And you have to read that, that statement in its entirety. I published the entire thing in my book with commentary. That, that it wasn't only a matter of belief in a creator, which Darwinism strips out, but it's also this understanding that man, it reduces man into just an inanimate animal. It yeah. takes away the soul. It says you're nothing more than a, an evolving bag of bones and, and blood. There's mm-hmm. nothing more to you. I mean, that's what the theory holds. And I think that this gets to the kernel, because I asked this question in the first hour. Why is it that the establishment elitist liberals loved this theory, and why did they embrace it when Darwin published his book in 1859 and make this a canon of their faith? I mean, this is like the, the new Bible. Well, it, enable, it enables them to say that you know the Bible is not scientific, and if something is not scientific, then why believe any of it? You know, right. if, if the foundational book of the Bible, Genesis, is BS, then why believe the rest of the Bible? And since the Bible supposedly is unscientific, then that discounts the entire tome. You know, the entire tome yeah. is nonsense according to their vision. That's right. And and by the way, the two cannot exist together. You can't right. have a rec- you cannot have in spite of the the the, the, um, the you know the acrobatics of certain ministers, by the way, who try to reconcile these two ideas, they're not reconcilable. They're utterly opposite. There, well, here's no the question way. you ask him. Just let me interject. Here's the question. Okay, if that's all you know, allegorical or you know, symbolic history, not real history. Tell me where real history begins to be recorded in the Bible. But anyway, go ahead. No, that's a great question. And. Um, yeah. You know, they, they, they can't answer that, they, nor can they answer how they can reconcile God creating man with man created, as Darwin said, in a small, warm pond. Right. You know, they, they, it, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, it can't, the two cannot meet. Either we're created in the image of God or we're not. Right. The, uh, the implication, though, I think that why, why did the establishment embrace this idea? Besides the fact that they were anti-religion, they were anti-God, it has to do with earthly power. It has to do with this idea that an elite group of very usually very wealthy men they know better than we do. Go well, ahead. Well, not only do they know better, but they can then take this enlightened knowledge and create a new man, a new utopia, and they they genuinely have convinced themselves quite sincerely that they are this, that this is the ultimate morality, the idea of forcing a new man, they believe in the concept of scarcity, which was first promulgated by by Malthus in England, another elitist, which is that we're going to run out of resources, we're going to all starve to death unless we evolve ourselves. Either we're going to evolve or we're going to perish. 
Got to and call the herd. They, yeah, call the herd, take over, and and recreate this new way of thinking, which involves the uh, the, the cultivation of superior specimens and the isolation and eventual elimination of inferior specimens. And by the way, I know this is a little off the wall to some, and it's too big a topic to get into, but I think this has everything to do with Obamacare. But we could talk about that separately, you know, this idea of the government deciding who lives and who dies. Um, it's the root of it. But, but, but the point is that this is why they embraced this theory. They believe that they have an enlightened wisdom, that they do know better than the rest of us, and that in order to save the human race, they have to cull the herd, as you say, they have to reduce the numbers, and that they have to take the superior members and create a new species. Sure. And using the science, the alleged science, the pseudoscience of Darwinism, you'd have to say that they were right. You know, if, if we are all in various stages of evolution or devolution, then we would be obligated to evolve our species. That's how we're going to get smarter. That's how we're going to get better. That's how we'll invent things because we'll be more evolved as biological specimens. And that's a, therefore it takes on a moral stand. That's why the Nazis felt that they were doing the right thing. They felt they were humane when they put people into the gas chambers. They thought this is saving man. We're getting rid of those who are standing in the way of progress. We're creating the Ubermensch. That's why the communists under Lenin and Stalin and Mao were, were very self-righteous when they were creating uh, the killing fields. You know, they were creating the new society, the sure. society that would be evolved into the point where they would reach the utopia, which was a one-world ant colony, one-world beehive. Right. Everyone is exactly equal, no more prejudices. Corporate Earth. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Everybody. It's and, and by the way, but it's you, a nonprofit with inflated currencies going. Yeah, and you mentioned Plato. <laughs> and you mentioned Plato. Plato's Republic gets in. You know, this is he was the father of a lot of that too. He gets into the society where the government decides that they need X number of soldiers, X number of merchants, X number of this, X number of that, and they take children at a young age, and they put them into these segregated communities where they're brought up by experts. And they're taught to to do what the state thinks that they're able to do. And the children who are born who are not seen as perfect, are uh, a judge looks at them and they put them on the hillside so they can die. Right. You know, I mean, it was kind of like a um, infanticide was very popular in ancient Greece. Sure. So anyway, that's this is uh, th these are the origins of this idea. My book gets into the philosophical and political. Uh, underpinnings of evolution of, of Darwin's evolution and its consequences. You get into, as a complement to that, I think, James, the science of it and the lack of science, the lack of proof, and you contrast that with conventional, old-fashioned understandings that go back to the beginning of time, which is the science as described in the Bible. And note that the Darwinists, they, they do not want to debate. You know, they'll debate a rube, but somebody that knows their stuff, they refuse to debate. Now, you'd think, since uh, Gallup reported several years ago that half of America believes Genesis essentially as it's written, you, therefore you'd think that the elitists would want to uh, grind us into the dust before all the world to see in public debate, yet they shy away. Now, do you tell me why that is? Well, yeah. I mean, it gets it. Well, besides the fact that what they st what they stand for is indefensible, it does. Oh yeah, they know they lose. They know they lose. Oh, yeah. When and I hit them with your term, species is meaningless. 
you know, why don't you try syngamions on for size? They their eyes glaze over. They freak out. They shut down. That's right, and we could talk about that. But yes, they will not debate mainly because they'll lose, but also because it questions the basic tenet of their own faith, and it is a faith. It's a sheer faith. This idea that uh, man is evolving and that they can. Uh, be evolved. I mean, it's ludicrous. I, and I know they're proven wrong, yet they stubbornly adhere to it. You know, how much more embarrassing is that at that point? So you're right. There's a lot of soul searching going on out there. And uh, you know, my my uh, foundation, GenesisVeracityFoundation.com. Mm -hmm. uh, we're now our worldwide ranking uh, for websites. We're now up there with Louis Vuitton and Nabisco. We're wow. getting millions from all over. We have a translation feature into 24 languages. We're getting millions from the Middle East, you know, hundreds of thousands from Iraq, from Cairo, from Tunisia, reading it in Arabic, you know, breaking down the Bible scientifically valid as it's written. No, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's certainly something that, that continues to resonate because it's true. And that the Darwinians hold the high ground only because they have the money and they've got the power and they've got the media and they've got these so-called elites. It's the same crowd that uh, promoted Darwin in the 1850s, and it's for the same reasons. You Isn't know, it remarkable that half half of America, despite all the indoctrination, still believes Genesis essentially as it's written? Now that to me is remarkable. Isn't, oh, isn't that, uh, considering everybody goes to public school and hears all this Darwinian bilge all their lives, you know, they rarely go to church, but yet still, that is the strength of the underground, these, uh, this underground movement, not underground, it's on the internet, proofs that all of Genesis is accurate. Now, once that half of America who believes Genesis becomes equipped with this information, such that Darwin's term species is meaningless for classification purposes, then they can go on the attack. They can go after these guys. You know, in the public schools, it's according to the Supreme Court, it's now allowable that the Bible be taught as history and ancient literature. Well, when you get back into Genesis, studying that history and ancient literature, the natural flow as well. Is this scientific or is this not? Therefore, it will flow into comparative scientific models. So the whole thing is totally constructive. And if the Darwinists are so right, why do they fear comparing the models? Well, you know, one of the ironies of the Scopes trial is that um, it was originally brought up by this uh, the, this young teacher in in uh, Tennessee uh, by the name of John Scopes who wanted to teach Darwinism in his class and who was uh, being told by the state of Tennessee that he could not do that. He was fined for doing it. That was the whole trial. But yet, since that trial and since that decision, now you're not allowed to teach anything but Darwinism in class. You're not allowed to mention the um, creationism, you're not allowed to mention intelligent design even, which simply says that there was a creator of the universe that doesn't even get into uh, the Bible. You're, not, you're legally not they, allowed they don't, to... They don't broach the subject that it's it, de facto it's a miracle that matter came from nothing. De facto, that is a miracle. So that's what we have to begin with, a miracle. And, well, and, and they yet they say that... that that could not have happened. It's ridiculous. They don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in the idea of a supernatural. And they, well, the fact that matter came from nothing, Chuck, that's my point. Right. The, the very Which, fact that matter at all came from nothing. 
you know, is a miracle. Anyway, is a miracle, but yet they won't they won't entertain the idea that this was they won't make that statement. They a will supernatural not make that event. statement. And and you have this false conflict, which I, I think is completely manufactured and dialectical, that there's a difference between faith and science. There is no difference between faith and science. They're completely complementary to each other. They're just different disciplines of the same subject. It's like saying, you know, if I'm going to study, um, you know, I'm going to study calligraphy or I'm going to study art. You know, they're just two branches of the same discipline, but they're not in conflict with each other. The study of science is simply the study of the natural world as it is and why it got here and where, you know, and to learn from it so we can further our knowledge. It doesn't contradict the possibility that there is a supernatural element to life at all. It right. just simply doesn't directly address it. It doesn't mean that it's a denial of it. I think that it's a study of God's universe. But, um, you know, you know th- this idea, I mean, I even noticed that this has creeped into, into my synagogue sitter. In the in the introduction, when they talk about uh, you know Genesis, this is a real politically correct liberal sitter now that says, well, this is a conflict, of course, and we're just talking about the religion, but we're not questioning the science. Nonsense. There's no contradiction between. So ask ask the rabbi where history begins to be recorded. (laughs) I know, really, but but yet they create the false. I hope you do. Tell us next week. I well, I can tell you that I actually spoke. At one, I'm a member of two synagogues, and one of them is an Orthodox synagogue. And I spoke on the topic of my book. We have speaking; uh, they invite speakers on, on the Sabbath, and the 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 reaction was completely hostile. And yeah. these are Orthodox Jews who stand there on on the Sabbath with the yeah. Torah. The Torah is the Bible. They take it out of the case. They chant, we believe the Torah is true. There's all this ceremony. They spend, these are religious people you know, who are more religious than I am, quite frankly. I'm not saying that because I'm proud, but they observe Jewish law more than I do in my own life. And, and they, they, they preach, and they, they read the Torah in its Hebrew, the ancient language, and they're, they're brilliant scholars, but yet they scoff when I mention, by the way, that when I say that the Torah is true on the Sabbath, I believe it. Don't you? No, they don't. Right. I mean, why are they doing this then? Right. Why be a, why be a Jew? <laughs> I mean, you, you, why could really, you could really kick us some that. Ask them that question, man. Say, yeah, okay. I'll say, why if be that's, Jew? If that's not real okay. history, where does real history begin to be recorded? Where? Where? Abraham yeah. and Moses, David, Daniel, well, where? They don't believe. I think that they believe that, that Abraham and Moses, these people, were real people. That I think they do accept. But they don't believe that there was a God that was involved in it. You know, they think that that's just kind of... Well, they're disavowing the table of nations in Genesis 10, then, and the line of the the Messiah, the Davidic line from Shem. They're denying all that, then, because that all had to have come from a genetic bottleneck of eight humans. Well, that's right, and they do do deny all of that. They view it now, and by the way, I'm, I'm not just criticizing... Modern Judaism here, because oh, this modern that, Christendom. Yeah, that's right. Modern Christendom also has completely embraced—not completely, but mostly embraced Darwinism. Half of America is holding on, though. They just don't talk much, I guess. Go ahead. That's right, and, and I think that what happens is they go through the colleges where they're indoctrinated into Darwinism, and, and even Nobody wants to be called an idiot, so they keep their mouth shut. You keep you keep your head low because you want to get along and you want to have a career and you want to be seen as reasonable. Absolutely. 
competent person. So, you know, you see the reaction. I mean, I've seen the reaction to my questioning it. For God's sakes, I had a sitting congressman criticize me on a, on a big television show to my face. Yeah. You know, that being a Barney Frank. So. Well, you just hit him with your term species is meaningless. Look up syngamions their stuff. Yes. That's what you need to tell them. Yes. I mean, you know, it's just a, it's an amazing uh, conflict there. And, and I do think that it gets to a very fundamental question, which is where did we come from and why are we here? And for the establishment left, if you will, and this goes back to the ancient days of uh, paganism, they believe in earthly power. You know, I mean, Whitaker Chambers, the great communist uh, activist who became a Christian and who turned in the communists in the Roosevelt administration and who wrote a book called Witness, one of my favorite books. I don't know if you've ever read it, James. If you haven't, I urge you to. Okay. He, uh, he says that uh, communism is the world's second oldest religion, uh, that being the religion of, uh, in the Garden of Eden when Eve was tempted by the serpent to be as gods, um, as opposed to, and she basically bought this lie. Well, that's what communism is all about. That's what the people were all about who embraced Darwin. That's what Nazism was all about, this idea that they are men who can be as God. They can overthrow God, and they can create their own earthly utopia. Oh, and Julius Caesar and the Pharaohs used to say they were God. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the Roman emperors were worshipped as gods. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's what Pyramido, for that matter. Yeah, you bet. I mean, that's what uh, this is what the whole warning is in the in the Torah, in the Bible, to reject idol worship. The idol was a, a man-made entity. It was set up by a king to uh, manipulate his population. To, right. to, you know, it was it was everything that was in that idol, or as the Bible says, a graven image, was invented by this elite. And that they would then gain power over people. They would hypnotize people through this uh, so-called entity, you know. And, and the, those entities involved all kinds of immoral practices, as we know. I mean, the, uh, the, the Moloch, which is described in the book of, uh, of Numbers, the way to worship Moloch was that they would throw their newborn babies into the burning belly. Right. I mean, these were extremely evil um, entities and and I think they were used as a way for the the pharaoh or the emperor to scare the heck out of their population to result in subjugation by people to this frightening power and uh, the the bible warns us it says reject these ideas Sure. sure anyways we're getting a little off the track here um the book is old earth why not james i ninhaus james again where can people uh, look at the website. You, you tell me that the website is gaining traction all over the world. That's really fascinating and very encouraging. Yeah, when you're up there with Louis Vuitton, imagine all the women <laughs> in the world that tune into that website, baby. Yeah. yeah. It's a, <laughs> Genesis Veracity. That's V E R A C I T Y. Genesis Veracity Foundation.com. Okay, let me take a brief break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. Special edition today. We're talking about uh, the book Old Earth, Why Not? We're also talking indirectly about my book, The Monkey, the Monkey Trial. We'll be right back. Please stay tuned.
back. 347-327-9849 is the number. If you'd like to join us in the final segment, 347-327-9849. My guest is James I. Neenhouse. The book is Old Earth, Why Not? The Genesis Veracity Foundation. Uh, and, uh, James, you've issued uh, since uh, this book, and I have this book going way back, uh, you've also published several other books and articles that are available on what is the website? Uh, all through GenesisVeracityFoundation.com. All the links to the various categories are there. Now, we've talked about the science of uh, creationism versus Darwinianism. We've talked about the philosophy of creationism and the morality that is inherent within it versus the uh, morality, if you will, of Darwinianism, which comes down to one simple phrase, survival of the fittest. And that was what Darwin used. And I want to bring things up to the present time. Since the Scopes trial of 1925, Darwinism has been the official legal religion of the United States, even though our secular establishment talks about vigorously about separation of church and state, which means really Christianity. They have embraced this. It is the official doctrine of the republic. It is taught in schools as a science. It is not questioned. And uh, people are in, continue to be conditioned to believe this idea from a very young age. We've talked about <clears throat> the, uh, the fact that it upends people's religious beliefs. It, uh, it creates this, uh, this idea that man is devoid of a spiritual side, that there is no God, and that we're all basically inanimate animals uh, spiraling out into uh, the world. Um, what can be done? I mean, we're still up against this enormous resistance, obviously, on the part of the establishment that scorns us by bringing this up. Where do we go from here, James? Yeah, well, first, and as important as the other, is you know the information, the evidence for Genesis as it reads has to be presented. So you know, I hope all your listeners go to my website and refer it to many of your friends because the evidence is really overwhelmingly compelling, particularly in comparison to the Darwinian model vis-a-vis Ice Age and Bronze Age history, and then couple in the meaningless of Darwin's term species, on and on. The whole thing, science actually fits the Bible like hand in glove. But the way really to attack it, or an equally uh, important component, would be to, to establish that Darwinism is, in fact, a faith. You know, because it's just a theory, it's just a hypothesis, if you will, and many more scientists all the time admitting that it's flimsy as heck. You know, you've you got to admit that it's it's a you, – you, you can call it a faith when it is taught exclusion uh, exclusively. If it's taught exclusively that and it's an unprovable uh, notion, then that, by definition, is a faith. So to only teach Darwinism, you can tell your representatives, is to treat it as a faith because it's unproven. Therefore, to not treat Darwinism as a religion or a faith, then you have to present other models. Because if you don't, you're treating the unprovable as fact, which is faith. I agree entirely. However, I would point out that the main... Um, argument used <clears throat> by the establishment is a way to keep um, uh, keep uh, evolu- keep uh, creationism out of the schools 
and out of education is that it would constitute the establishment of religion. And this is how I, I think I would respond to that. But the Supreme Court's already allowed the Bible as literature in ancient history text. In the well, that's what, I was, that's what I was going to get to, because I think that the way to address that would be that we should take Darwinism out of the realm of science and put it into the realm of philosophy, because it, it has been and is a philosophy. It's One not that observable has, science, you're right. That would be totally justified. Right, and but then also take religion and take the Bible out of the context of theology, which is to say that we're not bringing this up to advocate that people become right. a denomination. Right, call it a history book. Call it history. Is it call as it good also, a history book, or is it better or worse than the other history well, books? Well, Let's I would say that it should, it should also be called philosophy sure. and history, and that we should have the teaching of both of them under the rubric of philosophy where – they can each be debated on their philosophical merits. Sure, and leave observable we, science separate. I, I think that's a great Exactly, idea. keep science separate and keep religion separate. They sure. should be looked upon in terms of how have they impacted our civilization. Wow. And I think that if that happened, we could put into the proper context the way to teach both of them in a manner that would be very disadvantageous for the Darwinists. Right, but they oh, don't, I agree. That's probably why they don't want to do it's that. It's all in how you, yeah, it's all in how you frame the situation. Just like you know, allowing them to say we don't believe in evolution. You know, we don't believe in Darwinian evolution. Uh, oh, I had a great thought, and it just slipped my mind. Oh well, go ahead. Well, well I just, I just, say, I know there's so much to think about here, but I just had a thought as well, which is an argument that has been presented to me by a lot of Darwin apologists, and that is. Even though they say to me, even though, Chuck, I kind of agree with what you're saying, I cannot go along with it because if I did, then I would be siding with right-wing Christians. <laughs> right, well. I mean, and, and, and what I say to that is how scientific is that? I mean, first of all, <laughs> you know, if you, you, know you, you just want to get to the truth here. It doesn't matter who believes it. You know, you, you focus on what is true. Right. And if if this is true, if other people that they you feel more like, comfortable being in in solidarity with the occupoopers, go ahead. Well, exactly. I mean, just because other people that you may not like for various reasons also <laughs> embrace it, that has nothing to do with anything. I mean, it shows how utterly you relevant have two choices. They are. Yeah, there's going to be one or two you don't like in your group. Okay. But, uh, well, that, oh, that's right. Oh, I was back to the, the uh, oh, you know. Uh, Darwinists will say, well, science is threatened by, or the Bible is a threat to science. You know, it'll destroy the scientific method. You've heard that line a million times. Sure. Before, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. Well, check this out. I was in the New York Times chat room about uh, six years ago before I was banned for being too effective. And I and they kept saying, you know, you'll, you'll destroy the scientific method. Scientific progress will grind to a halt, blah, blah, blah. So I challenged them. I said, okay. Tell me some scientific innovations or discoveries which were predicated upon the Darwinian model. Long pause. I think like a half day. This is a chat room, you know, on yep. the internet. Finally, guess what they come back with? What's that? Airplane wing designs and fl traffic flow solutions. And how did they make that case? I I, <laughs> I mean, what does one thing have to do with the other? I, I can tell you, I've also had some of these extremely hostile chat room experiences where people just go ballistic uh, by, by questioning the, the, this theory. I mean, and I'm talking about a lot of them are good conservative people, too. Yeah. Oh, speaking about the age of the earth issues? Age of the earth, Darwinism, any right, of right. that. 
They right. just, just ask him, just ask him well, if the early portions of the Bible are BS. You tell me where real history begins to be recorded. Shuts them up every time, bro. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a guy recently. It was actually a high school friend who um, took went ballistic on me and saying, "How could you embrace this? You're, you're involving yourself with religious kooks." He tells me, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's it, it gets into so some will say are bound for heaven, where you as yeah. you are not. Now, can you disprove that will be the case? No, he might say logically. Well, well what he's showing is his own prejudice against religion. Is what sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, sure. We, we don't take it personally, mature Christians. No. You know, we know that you know they hate they hate God, so that's why they hate us. So it's not and, like and that gets into a bigger question, of course, which brings up even more raw emotions, which is why this animus toward religious faith. I mean, I've seen comments come over from. I mean, I have a guy that comes on this this program fairly regularly, who's a man of the left, who uh, who just despises religious faith and he talks about how could religious people suggest for example that god might have a role in various events that occur in nature yeah, allows things to happen right that's right and, and, and i'm like well w- well first of all we don't know whether god did or not because that's only only god knows but the idea that god would or could or might that's a basic premise that that exists in the bible it certainly exists in judaism and why the hostility toward that why does that make people so angry well, they want. They think everybody should be able to go to heaven on their own terms. Well, yeah, I mean that's and that, which that's is uh, judges speak reeks of arrogance. And you know, you're going to tell the Creator God how you should get to heaven? Are you kidding me? Yeah, anyway. I mean it's the agnostic <laughs> idea that was first promulgated by Huxley, who was Darwin's main promoter. That being that you get to make it up, right. you get to decide. Whatever you're feels of, good, baby. Yeah, you're the center of the universe. And and to judge you is is prejudice. Doesn't matter if you're Jeffrey Dahmer carving up bodies and putting in the freezer. You right. get to decide what is moral and what isn't. And that to question someone's ability to do that is prejudice. And that's right. of course gets into the the, alter, the the basic Marxian idea, which is that man is the creator of the universe. That man invents reality that man invents moral codes based upon what serves his interest, and that uh, the, the people that get to do that are the experts, that there is no objective moral code. There is no received wisdom upon which we uh, are able to measure our lives. This doesn't exist. But it is written on our hearts, you know, people that aren't totally, you know, depraved, you know, right. have a, a their conscience, but the, you know, they can they respond well, even, to greater even or young lesser children. Degrees. You know, there's been there's been a recent study. I forget the the name of it. It was mentioned to me by a guest that that young children understand that there is a creator and that there is a moral decalogue. There is. Oh, right it's written on our hearts. You know, the Bible. Yeah, says I mean, the and, and that's written on our, our children are, are corrupted by uh, by these uh, change agents. You know, that that is just it's common sense. It's what Thomas Jefferson said. It's self evident. It's right. self-evident that all men are created equal, and Jefferson was not known to be overly religious. No, but but yet he understood, and and that's the entire. This is the entire concept upon which the American Republic is based. That's right. what makes us different than other nations. I hope that, you really do write that pre rewrite the uh, preamble to the uh, Declaration of Independence for the Darwinists. I love the idea. I think and, you really should do that. <laughs> I think you ought to buy a little ad of the Boston Globe. 
<laughs> oh boy! Last time I bought a, I, I paid the Boston Globe to uh, carry a column of mine um, when I was running for Congress, and um, I the, the ramifications of that still reverberate. Believe me, <laughs> I, I had Barney Frank had me investigated by by two federal agencies over that. Oh, I mean, wow. he went ballistic. I understood. Somebody told me that he showed up in the Globe's office and he took a shoe off and started banging the table. Oh. Who did, how did you let this happen? How did you let that column go in the paper? Who did think Nikita Khrushchev was his hero? Who did think <laughs> it? Oh, my God. That was something else. But what <laughs> what what, in, what insights I gained from that experience. I mean, it was Oh, just, I know you did. You know, how yeah. much you learn, how much more you see about the world. You know, we that's the way it often is. You know, we go through yeah. trials and tribulations, man. That's when we learn. And I'll, the one thing I'd mention to our listeners on that is that it is, I, I urge people to try that, to go out and run for office. Whether okay. or not you're a housewife, you're a retired person, you're a teenager, you know, if you have a little bit of time and you can do something, run for local office. Because even, whether you win or not, you will get a couple of issues heard. You will be reported on. You will introduce certain ideas into the culture. And it's a very exhilarating experience. It's something yeah. that, and you could win, not to mention. Yeah. And there's some very charismatic people just kind of laying in the shadows, man, that could really bust out. Yeah, and you have to get up at the bat and take a swing. You know, yep, it's that simple. Right. And, and, and if you go down, there'll be a, someone else who'll get up and take the next shot. It's and just contrary a, to what the Darwinists and reincarnationists say, it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So yep. we ain't coming back as little frogs or wonderful ponies if we're good. <laughs> no, this is this is uh, all in the realm of um of of some fantasy on that one. Yeah. Anyway, James, um just briefly because we get, we got to get going. Mention where people can read your books and the website and all that good stuff. Sure, you can order a book uh, Old Earth Why Not and uh the second book uh written in 2006, Ice Age Civilizations uh through uh, Genesis Veracity foundation.com veracity is spelled v is in victory e-r-a-c-i-t-y genesis veracity foundation.com and join in the facebook page we have lively discussions in there where darwinists um, seldom dare to venture it's it's a totally encouraging totally predictable you know they lose in head-up debate so join in genesis veracity foundation.com james i want to thank you for joining me this afternoon Thank you, Chuck. It's my great pleasure, man. Enjoy the talk a lot. All right. Talk to you soon. Yes, sir. All right. Take care. We're going to take a brief break. We'll be right back. Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, we just uh, were, were joined by James I. Nienhaus, Old Earth, Why Not? The Genesis Veracity Foundation. Uh, James was nice enough also to talk a little bit about my book, my book, my book, The uh, Monkey Trial, 
uh, evolutionary politics in the pre tradition in the post traditional age. That book, of course, is available on my website. That being uh, Chuck Moore Speaks. Uh, you're welcome to check it out there. And uh, with these few more minutes left to the program, we obviously should mention that the polls for our national election are opening within hours, really. Uh, we just have the rest of the day. We've got the weekend, and we've got Monday. I don't think that there's much more that can be done by either candidate to uh, sway things at this point. It's just going to have to, you know, to introduce a new conversation with just hours to go is not is not going to be uh, effective. I, I don't think for either side. I think that both sides, both in the presidential race and in the congressional races, they have made their case. And it is now up to us, the voters, to decide how we want to go. Um, on a technical matter, I think it should be pointed out that there are very, very serious instances in several states of voter fraud in favor of Barack Obama. Uh, they have to do with these computer uh, voting. Uh, apparently, the uh, computer is set up in such a way, according to reports in over six states now, that uh, the box for Mitt Romney is smaller than the box for Barack Obama. And if your pencil goes outside that box or even touches the edge of the box when you vote, then it automatically pops up the name Barack Obama. So be very, very careful when you vote. Make sure that you get it right and check after you voted. If you're using one of these machines, check it after the vote and make sure that it is voting correctly. And if it's not voting correctly, take a little bit of time to report that to the, uh, to the clerk at your voting place. Unfortunately, it's probably going to be registered anyways to Obama. Do I think this is fraud? Personally, yes. But it doesn't matter whether it is or not. The fact is it's happening. That's a fact in six states, and that could turn an election. So if Mitt Romney is to be elected as president of the United States, he's going to have to get out a, a huge vote to overcome the fraud in order to put him in the White House. And that means that if you are a supporter of Mitt Romney, and I hope most reasonable people are at this point, you need to get out to vote. You need to get your friends out to vote. You need to get your colleagues out. You need to get your family out. You can offer to take people to the polls, bus people. I don't know. I mean, the, the liberal Democrats are probably offering people booze and, and pot. <laughs> or, you know, they, 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 of course, that's a tradition that goes way back. Uh, you know, the William Henry Harrison election of 1840, they were handing out whiskey. So, I mean, as I, this isn't new. Uh, but the fact is that the honest vote has to get out, and it has to get out big. If we're going to win this election, and I mean we, the American working people, uh, those of us who care about the future, we're going to have to really put out something here, or else we're going to get stuck with a miserable, depressing four more years of Obama which is something that I think most reasonable people, even his supporters, don't particularly relish. There's nothing that he's offered to, uh, to, to put on the table that, uh, that, that is, um, is, is anything that would inspire people. I mean, let's be honest. Um, here we have, a, I'm looking at the Drudge Report, Harry Reid is already, who accused Mitt Romney of, of not paying taxes, 
he's now saying it's laughable to think the Senate Democrats would work with Romney. Well, you know, he's uh, if the uh, Republicans take the U.S. Senate, then Harry Reid will no longer be the uh, majority leader there, and uh, it'll be Harry that'll have to work with uh, with Romney and with the Republicans in the Senate. So, you know, the the left has complained about gridlock. I say let's end the gridlock. Let's end the gridlock by electing Mitt Romney as president and by electing uh, Scott Brown here in Massachusetts as senator and other Republicans around the country to make sure that the Republicans have enough members of the U.S. Senate to get something done. And what is it that they're going to get done? What they're going to get done is they're going to stop Taxamageddon, which is going to kick in on January 1st, and it's going to take a big chunk out of everyone's pocket. They're going to get done the rescinding of the Bush tax cuts, which means a huge tax increase for working people. They're going to get rid of Obamacare, which is going to be all of these mandated taxes in 2013, and which is a payroll tax for working businesses, and which is going to contract the ability of businesses to function. They're going to get done a revamping of some of these anti-business regulations. They're going to encourage the development of domestic fuel domestic oil and coal. We're going to get done an atmosphere that will immediately lend encouragement and confidence to our business sector, including Wall Street, which will mean that businesses will once again take some of the capital that they've been sitting on for several years, and they will start planning on investing that capital next year into expansion, which will result in people getting jobs. That's what they'll get done. So, you know, step up to the plate and do it for yourself. Do it for your own self-interest. Vote for Mitt Romney because you want to have a better year next year. You want to have a little bit more job security. You want, you're want you tired of this, uh, this idea that your job is threatened. There's no guarantee you won't be laid off. But at least we can know that the country is moving in a, in a sane direction. At least we can know that the country has not is not going to sit back while the $16 trillion deficit destroys and eats away and erodes our, our ability to uh, have our dollar retain its value, that it erodes our economic growth and that it threatens to mortgage our futures. You know, this is a fact. I mean, these things have happened in history. We could look at the ancient Romans who uh, imploded on their, on their debt and who began to devalue their currency by cutting their money in half and, and create, you know, and inflating it. Uh, we, 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 you know, that's where we're headed in this country. You know, unless we have a responsible, conservative government that takes the necessary but painful at times choices of, of, of controlling and reining in the costs of doing business. Uh, you know, and I think that in that regard, Mitt Romney is going to be a lot more responsible because those cuts will be gradual rather than what will happen with Obama, which is that he won't cut at all, and the result will be there will be an implosion, and there will be forced cuts, which will be very drastic and very painful. So get out, vote early, vote often for, for Mitt Romney. Let's put Mitt Romney in office. I'm excited. I'm nervous, but I'm excited over the possibilities. I think like most of us, I'll be glad when it's finally over, but let's have victory for the American people on Tuesday by voting for Mitt Romney. I want to thank you for listening. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. I again want to thank James Greenhouse, Old Earth Why Not, 
the Genesis Veracity Foundation for joining me at this program for a special edition. Uh, check out my blog site, Chuck Moore Speaks, for my book, The Monkey Trial. Uh, you can order it there online. It's only three seventy-five, and that is The Monkey Trial, Evolutionary Politics in the Post-Traditional Age. Thanks for listening, everybody, and have a very